1: Follow our coverage on
0: AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast,
1: Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. This, my friends, is Access Atlanta. It's a new podcast that shares the best things to do, see, eat, and experience.
3: AJC Access Atlanta is sponsored by Northside Hospital Cancer Institute, built to beat cancer.
1: This is Shane Harrison. I'm here with Lagaia Figueres, who is our dining editor, and we're going to talk about the dining guide, which is launching this week.
3: Yes, it is. Tasty stuff coming your way.
1: <laughs> All right. So um, this is one of my favorite things of the year that we do. I love it because I love to eat, and I know everyone else does, too. So tell us a little bit about what's different about this dining guide.
3: Sure. Okay. And by the way, I love the dining guide, too, although this is twice a year this is when we pack on the pounds researching. <laughs> we get the spring dining guide and the fall one come around. Um, so this time around, the theme is called Global Mashup.
1: And uh, tell me, what is that about? What is a global mashup?
3: Okay, so uh, more than ever, I would say the dishes that we are eating have a touch of global flavor. What does that mean? So tacos aren't just Mexican anymore. Um, Dishes are getting, tacos are getting inflected with Korean flavors. They're getting inflected with flavors from the Middle East, from the Caribbean. Uh, That's just one example. You see... Um, a union of Cajun and Vietnamese dishes I, in multiple instances. Think collards, which is the quintessential soul food. Those are getting, uh, you know, y- ingredients from around the world chefs are reaching for um, and and flavoring their collards with that or using collards in ways that are um, just kind of not traditional or certainly unexpected.
1: Right, yeah. One of my favorite things is... Uh... There's a collard green quesadilla,
3: I think. That's which, right. Uh,
1: I love that. It's one of my favorite things.
3: Sure. And there's, you know, uh, collard green pho, for example. Wow. That you yeah. can get at Richard's Fried Southern. So, yeah. So we're taking a look at um, all those kinds of things. You know, as far as like how this whole project got started... Um, I got my start personally, you know, in food. And when it comes to food and dining, because I love to cook. I'm a home cook. And I, so I voraciously also eat up cookbooks. And this past September, there was a new cookbook that came out called Milk Street Cookbook. It's by Chris Kimball, who right. is formerly from America's Test Kitchen. And I love in the book, he wrote that ethnic cooking is dead. We are all simply making dinner. Um, so in, in the cookbook, you know, he, he uses recipes that call technique and flavors, you know, from around the world. And I think it's true. We uh, more than ever have at our ready disposal these ingredients that we, you know, 15 years ago, it might have been tricky to find, say, something like cilantro. Right. Right. And now yeah. it's like, whatever, you can find that anywhere. Right. You don't even have to go to uh, some specialty store. Um, same thing, all sorts of foods at, at our disposal that, that that we can use. And we're using them in search of. We're, we're searching for flavor here so this i would say the idea of like authenticity it's kind of gone out the window right. and that's okay yeah so yeah so we you know come thinking back for you know to this cookbook um you, you switch it over to all of the, the if we're doing this at home we're certainly seeing this everywhere at restaurants right. so yeah so we decided this time around let's take a look and see see what's happening in the atlanta foods team so you are going to see uh stories like I mentioned, tacos earlier. Uh, we take a look at tacos, certain categories, fries, potatoes. Think about what they're doing with potatoes and fries. Um, ramen, yep. pizza, um, certainly cocktails too. Yes. You know, libations, <laughs> definitely. We're seeing some transformations. Um, and even something as minor as a condiment. You know, what's an eye only? And all of a sudden, if you throw, I don't know, um, there's just myriad things that we can put into Nioli, and suddenly it makes it—it uh, it, it takes you halfway around the globe.
1: Right. Yeah, I love the—I I love taking one ingredient and and adding it to something from a totally different culture, and it just changes everything about it. Right. And everyone's doing that now.
3: Everyone's doing it. It's fun. Now, I will say, you know, the exciting ones are the ones where they found. Uh, great flavor combinations, yeah. right? So certainly things can be unexpected and your palate, you, you eat it and you go, oh my gosh, wow, this was just so unexpected. Yeah,
1: why didn't someone think of it before?
3: Right. <laughs> um, now, there are instances when it's not so good. And I yeah. think that's why I hesitate to call this fusion. I think fusion is something that's a little bit dated as a term. Yeah. Um, and I, to me, this is a very um, deliberate, Uh, choice in really selecting uh, a thought behind what ingredients am I using, what dish am I, you know, using, what are the, what are certain techniques that we're, what we're putting together.
1: So. Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's an interesting thing. Fusion does, it has this sort of.
3: It's like gourmet.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It has an 80s, 90s feel to it. The word does. And And
3: this is something new and fresh.
1: Yeah. And part of the dining guide, uh, you talk to someone who is doing this very thing in a pop-up, not even just a brick and mortar, but they're doing it in a pop-up style.
3: Yeah, that's right. I mean, we see collaborations happen all the time. And uh, just recently, uh, I attended a collaborative dinner that was with um, Parnas Savang from uh, Talat Market. Right. Which, by the way, was a pop-up. And now they are soon um, going to be a brick and mortar, which yep. is exciting. Um, and he did this um, this dinner with Hee Lee. And she is the author of Everyday Korean Cookbook. Right. She's here in Atlanta. Um, so here you have Thai cuisine on one hand. And on the other, you have Korean. And what the two of them did when they teamed up was challenge, essentially challenge one another to use the ingredients of the other... Cuisine, yeah, um, and perhaps they would apply those to either using techniques that you know um, might either be Thai or or Korean, and vice versa. Yeah. So it's really this fun union of. Um, of it's a meld of essentially the korean and thai and it was a delightful meal
1: yeah that sounds awesome and I, yeah. again
3: really fresh <laughs> but highly deliberate highly thought out um and and tasty so hopefully uh when people read the dining guide though it'll give them some ideas on where they can go out and find some of this uh exciting cuisine around town
1: yeah that's awesome i can't wait to uh see all of the cool places that you guys have been and that you can take us behind the scenes and that's what's really cool about this we don't just um you know we get to go behind the scenes and see how this stuff comes together as well as you know just trying it out oh yeah Uh, for sure
3: when if people go uh read the the guide online they'll find uh you know all sorts of videos um interviews with some of the chefs on you know uh, where do they see the Atlanta restaurant scene right now and also you know, just this talk a little bit about um, what is this global mashup and how um, how excited they are to to use all sorts of flavors you know and ingredients bring those together in, in different ways
1: right and that's just one of the ways that I mean Atlanta has been it's such a growing food city really and I mean this is this is just proof of, of how how diverse it is, really.
3: Oh, I think so, too. You know, um, and we'll mention this in the guide, but when you think about some of the new places that are opening these days, too, this is just a phenomena that's almost regular. There's a new uh, place that opened up in Duluth. It's called Nuna. um, And they combine American Steakhouse with the flavors of Korea. Wow. Right? Um, And I know that um, Mission and Market is coming to Buckhead. That's by Ian Winslade, And, you know, that's supposed to be, quote, west coast style restaurant um but what's the menu gonna have global influences he's reaching for thai flavors he's reaching for japanese flavors um and so that's it's it's really interesting how we'll we'll see how he puts those together
1: right and another interesting thing about you mentioned duluth it's like this is something that's happening all over
3: right it's
1: it's not just in town you don't have to come into town anymore for to get these global flavors. For
3: example. Yeah, yeah. No, Greater Atlanta. We've yep. seen it.
1: Yeah. So you you know, no matter where you live, you can probably experience this global mashup.
3: Absolutely agree.
1: That's going to be online Thursday, April 12th, and then in the go guide on Friday, April 13th. You got it. That's great. Well, thanks for being here, Lagaya. I really appreciate it and uh, we're going to be playing your story uh, so that everybody can see what the dining guide is going to be all about.
3: That sounds wonderful. Thanks for having us. More than ever, the food we eat is an expression of cultural globalization. It's really a reflection of our diversity and interconnectivity as, as a people. So I think we broaden our horizons about the possibilities of cooking with even something uh, that is so quintessentially Southern, like collards. Why should the staple vegetable of this region only get slow simmered with fat back in some stockpot when it can get Italian treatment like in a collard green and ricotta fritter or you give it this Mexican makeover in a collard quesadilla? And if you're reaching for global flavors in your own kitchen... It's certainly true that they're doing the same thing at restaurants around the country, and definitely here in Atlanta, we're seeing so many
2: places take a cross-cultural approach to food and drink. My name is Singhee Lee. I am an author of Everyday Korean. It's a cookbook that infuses Korean everyday cooking with, for American home cooks. Tonight's dinner is Korean Thai fusion delicious dinner. And um, the reason why I'm doing this with Parnas is when I first went to his pop-up dinner, I was just blown away by its authenticity. There's no one who does something like that here in Atlanta. And I am a true believer of really communicating culture through food. And that's what I felt when I ate at Parnas's restaurant. I'm in Thailand right now. And I think Parnas and I kind of share that similar values as to sharing authentic experience for both Korean and Thai Flavors, and we thought like how fun would it be for Pernas to cook Thai food with Korean ingredients and I incorporate Thai ingredients into my very authentic Korean cooking. So we are experimenting and it, it's been really fun.
1: My
4: name is Will Turner. I am the founder and owner of the Black Skin Mexican Soul Food Restaurant here in Atlanta, Georgia. I was always taught that music and food are the great
3: uniters of different cultures and races. So anytime that we can use food or music to bring people together, I am all for it. I think it's a great thing. Um, My background is I'm half Irish and half African-American, actually. So, you know, for me, I'm always trying to figure out ways to bring people together instead of, you know, what we have going on in society right now, separating people more and more.
0: So more fusion food, more fusion music, you know, everything we can do to bring people together is good for me.
3: When I spoke with my fellow dining critic, Wendell Brock, he and I exchanged some ideas about the guide and where the mashups were occurring. Uh, and he mentioned that he thought that certain archetypes or groups would emerge. And that's exactly what we what happened. Uh, tacos, burritos, wraps, burgers, pizza, all of those uh, sorts of dishes emerged. And Wendell specifically focused on tacos.
0: Um, I think tacos are interesting. Because you, you're starting to see them everywhere. I think eventually they'll be on, like you know, every casual restaurant menu. Right. Um, you know, fast food and everywhere. And it's basically a sandwich. You can do anything with it. You know, it's a piece of bread folded
4: over. So hold on, Wendell. Hold on. <laughs> That's a dramatic claim to to make. I think some people think that a sandwich requires two slices of bread, not one. Have you heard this debate? Sense
0: it's a fold-over sandwich don't you ever like make a sandwich and with like peanut butter and jelly and just fold it over i make hurry, it all the hurry time and, yeah absolutely I mean, but but I'm in hurry. two pieces of bread
4: I, I don't know i've i've heard that this is quite a contentious it's a controversy that you need two two slices of bread to have a sandwich but so but i mean so
0: a lot of us are carb watchers so
4: that makes perfect sense it's it's a sandwich for our time only one slice of bread yeah
3: yeah. <laughs> okay. So, taco or sandwich, whatever it is, what are you seeing inside it that is um, transforming it from what we might think of as a Mexican taco?
0: Um, well, you know, we live in the South, and the cuisine of the South has always been a mix up since the beginning when Europeans and Africans came here. And you know, now it's reflecting changing times in my lifetime. We've, we've gotten so many more immigrants from Asia and Latin America. So you're, you're, you're seeing that in our tacos and you're seeing Southern and Korean tacos mashed together. Um, Eddie Hernandez is a great example of somebody who in 2000 started a taqueria using influences from his native Mexico and Texas, Tex-Mex. He lived in Houston for a while and then he started working with cooks from from New Orleans. Um, so he just he kind of, you know, blended all that together and came up with his own style. And that was in 2000. Um, so he's, he's kind of a pioneer in
3: that. Right. You know what? I actually he's got a new uh, cookbook out, yes. right? It's called uh, Turnip Greens and Tortillas. Love the name Perfect of that. Note. But I was looking at the beginning of that book. He also mentioned something like he's unabashed about. It doesn't matter if this isn't authentic. Don't worry about it.
0: Who are we now to say what's authentic? I mean, you know, if if my sandwich has one piece of bread, that's that's my authentic sandwich.
3: There you go. There (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Another of the AJC's dining critics, Wyatt Williams, was really interested in exploring the connection between Cajun and Vietnamese cuisine.
4: You know, I really wanted to focus on, on that specific style of food, Viet Cajun food, that I think a lot of people call it now, um, because I think this thing that we're talking about, the global mashup, is, you know, something like we called it maybe fusion in the 90s and that sort of thing. And it kind of got a bad reputation. And I think people got tired of it because it sometimes seemed uh, artificial. It seemed like some like two things that didn't really have anything to do with one another were getting put together for almost no reason, or to amuse a chef, or to be unusual, but you know, to not have any sort of story or, or thing that brought those two things together. You know, what's interesting that's happened with Vietnamese and Cajun food is that you have two places that are are really remarkably similar. There are low lying lands, Louisiana and Vietnam, where you have great seafood coming out of the water, you have rice growing in the land, and they're both former French colonies. And so they have techniques of food. Let's say, for example, the baguette that became the po boy in Louisiana, but became the banh mi in Vietnam. And today we're seeing, I think, a further connection of these things because so many people after the war in Vietnam relocated to Louisiana and to Houston and to other areas. And a lot of people post-Katrina actually relocated here to Atlanta. Um, from Louisiana, and so all of that has made for a, a number of restaurants that have taken this style of food and done, I think, some increasingly interesting things with it. Um, a lot of Atlantans, I think, are familiar with Crawfish Shack Seafood. It's been a um, long, long-running restaurant here in Atlanta, where you could get almost imperceptibly an influence of Vietnamese food. Everything appears to be just as it would be a Cajun place, but then if you say, pay attention to the flavors in the boiled crawfish, you'll note that there's lemongrass and there, a sort of bright flavor that you would never necessarily find in Louisiana, but it's because the owner's Vietnamese influence uh, is interested in using that in the boil. And, and, and then since those sort of small things have come out, I've seen an increased number of uh, variations. For example, restaurant Bonton here in Midtown, where they've taken this sort of cultural mashup, if we want to call it fusion, to like a whole nother level, where they're serving things like a uh, hot Nash or Nash- a Nashville hot oyster po' boy with XO sauce. And if I can try and break that down for you, that's both. A influence from Tennessee of fried chicken, but using those spices on fried oysters as they would be made in in Louisiana on a po' boy or a, a baguette that could be from Vietnam or Louisiana, and then with a flavored sauce that originates in Hong Kong, four different um, you know, influences all in one sort of simple, good, fried, spicy dish.
3: Right. Well, one of the interesting t- things, too, when you talk about fusion— And, um, how we might have felt about that word, Mm -hmm. even just a few years ago, where, um, one of the reasons maybe there was just this sort of mark against it is, do they even know where these, um, flavor profiles are coming from? Is it, is it, does it make sense? And right now, and I think that the ones we're going to be, um, mentioning, you know, in the guide, for example, it's very deliberate, number one, and it's really good flavors. Like it's, it's, it's it, they're delicious, right? And so yeah, yeah. it is this you, you have, this search for You have <laughs>
0: not always, right? But,
3: <laughs> but but it's it's um it, it makes sense when you see them yeah. together I, as opposed to just this random this I think random grabbing. About mm-hmm. what they're doing, you
0: know? Right. Instead so of just randomly throwing flavors together. Right. Just right.
3: Well, and, um, you know, something that you mentioned earlier in talking about, you know, we are in the South here, we see so many um, of the restaurants that are, you know, using local ingredients. They are changing their menus seasonally, sometimes, you know, daily, weekly or whatever. And mm-hmm. I think that that's another layer um, that that we see going into into some of the dishes. I'm going to give an example here. I was thinking about the falafel that's on the menu at um, Local 3, which is actually... It just was taken off recently. It's going to go back on, but as a different iteration. And talking with uh, Chris Hall, he was explaining to me, yeah, they're looking to see how they can, what they can do with southern ingredients and give it a Middle Eastern bent. So the falafel itself was actually made from chickpeas and blue barley, which is from here, Um, as opposed to you know chickpeas only. And now they're going to change it. I think the what he told me is they're going to mess around with using pickled green strawberries with it next because. You know, this is the time for – strawberries are soon, you know, yeah. coming in or whatnot. Like as a
0: condiment,
3: you mean? No, I think – it, it's, somehow it's going to be vegetable. part of their falafel presentation. Right, mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm.
4: right. You
0: could use fill peas.
4: Oh, yeah. Well, you know – Kind of legume, peanuts. Yeah. What do they call them? Pulses is sort of the trendy name for those. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, similarly, when I was looking at um, – R- non-traditional ramens being made here in Atlanta. Um, you know, the one that impressed me the most, um, Bruce Logue at Boca Lupo makes a ramen that has collard greens and boiled peanuts in it. And to me, you couldn't have anything more distinctly of the South than the collard green and the boiled peanut, right? We raise plenty of peanuts here in Georgia. We grow collard greens like weeds here. Um, but what's so surprising is how well they work in as ramen. You know, we're used to, let's say, nori being in a ramen, that sort of sheet of salty green that adds a kind of vegetal note to it. And this, the, the collard greens and the saltiness that they've already been in from, from their pot liquor adds such a similar and yet different quality to it. And the pleasure of the boiled peanuts on top is... Well, if you like boiled peanuts, and I love boiled peanuts, I am I'm not just a
3: boiled peanut person, but oh, I'm working really? on it. Oh, I, I, I'm working on deal it. With I'm working on it. Like they're they're wet. They're wet. I need mine <laughs> roasted and dry and salted. Yeah. I don't know. I'm working on it, Wyatt.
0: <laughs> the, the age of them really matters a lot. Like if they're fresh out of the field, they're so tender. You don't even really have to cook them that long. It's a different thing than what you get on the interstate. You know, when you get them from those mass produced. Crock-Pot things with all the, you know what I'm talking about? All the you're nasty spices.
4: Like a true Georgia boy, <laughs> Wendell. You're a peanut farm. Yeah, or, right. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but uh, back to Bocalupo, do you know about his chicken parmesan? I haven't had the
4: chicken parmesan
0: there. It. It Tell me about it. It's collards. Oh, really? And it has kind of a, an Italian
4: version of macaroni and cheese. So it's, a, it's like a southern <laughs> meat too, you know warped through you know italy he is such a talented chef the the most recent meal i had it there with with the to try out the ramen during our research for this was so impressive from the service right down to the choice of wine right down to the fact that i had to slurp every last ounce of broth out of that bowl it was yeah. so good I'm, i i think he's one of the um, because he hasn't opened a restaurant in several years, I haven't seen him talked about maybe, you know, praised as much, but I think he's making some of the best food in Atlanta, at least in my recent experience.
3: If we, th- if we think big picture, um, about, uh, some of the, the folks sort of at the forefront of, um, you know, this global mashup and we want to call it that, you know, you mentioned Eddie from, you know, Eddie Hernandez from Taqueria do Sol doing this way back when, um, who do you think these days, in terms of restaurants that you might go to, and like wow, this is a quite the union? You mentioned Bonton. You know, mm-hmm. I know that j- here at the AJC, the Blackskin food truck comes all the time, and those guys are really known for. Really? It. Um, that. Yeah, stick around. That I think great. they might be coming today.
0: I think um, they're not really new, but I think Heirloom. Market does some of the best of that kind of food, and it's just a natural to put barbecue and and kimchi or or you know at other places you'll have southern barbecue with coleslaw. It's you Mm -hmm. know pork and cabbage seem to always go together.
4: Wendell or look, did did y'all watch the Ugly Delicious show on Netflix? Did you see that David Chang's new television show? Yeah, I've seen tacos and burgers. I think. Okay, so I watched the barbecue episode a few nights ago, and I've got a real beef here because the whole episode is arranged around David Chang going, Hey, I love Korean barbecue. I grew up with it, and I really love American barbecue, and I admire all of these pitmasters. Why doesn't anybody ever combine the flavors of Korean barbecue with the techniques of American barbecue? And I'm sitting there watching this for an hour. He asked the question over and over. And I go, heirloom market's been doing that in Atlanta for a decade, dude. Where have you been? How do you not know about this? And it's a little – it was odd to me that they didn't go there or mention it. I I just felt like it was an omission worth mentioning now. I I just –
3: you guys, for example, when you go into to a restaurant that you're going to review, you're probably one of the most um, you've done your research, right? Sure. So you're you you've looked at that menu, you've thought about it uh, for normal people mm-hmm. um, who might not, for example, think about where is that where is that ingredient hailing from? What mm-hmm. certain technique might be traditional for you know for for, for this type of cuisine. Mm-hmm. Um, do, do you think that we need to be so um, aware and astute as diners that we need to know all of this uh, when walking into a restaurant? And because you left ambivalent the first time. Mm-hmm. And then you had to really think about it. Okay, did I like it? Do I not like it? Oh, it clicked. Well, for a lot of people, it might not click. And they just want to go eat out.
4: I agree. Well, I think what you're actually talking about is maybe me being Overeducated on the subject, right? Because I'm looking for this one thing that I already know, or this other thing that I already know. When Wait, if I sandwich
0: has to have two pieces. Yeah, like yeah, your sandwich.
4: Styles <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, and maybe you know, maybe forgive us because we're the sort of people that are sitting talking for a radio show for you know, on a Monday morning for at length about food. We're a little bit unusually interested in it, right? Maybe. Sometimes it's hard for us to go in with no preconceptions, with no just, I want to be pleased, I want to order off this menu. But I think, obviously, there's an opposite of that, right? Because when you really understand what's on your plate, you're able to appreciate it more. Just like if you really understand what's in your bottle of wine, you'll be more receptive to what's What's in it, right? right? No,
3: definitely. Definitely. I think that's
0: a real joy is when you don't really know what you're getting into. You just stumble onto something or you have something brand new that you've never had before, and it just
4: works. I couldn't yeah. agree more. It, it feels like... I don't like, know, care where it's from or who made it. It's just delicious.
3: Well, guys, thanks for joining me today. Nice to chat food, as always, with you.
4: Yeah, we'll have to go have some
0: um, falafel tacos. Soon.
3: Or is it a falafel uh, sandwich?
4: I don't know. I promise not to argue if you bring me.
3: You're coming. You can come. You can <laughs> we'll come. think about that. All right, guys. Take care.
1: Let's take a look at what's happening in and around Atlanta over the next 10 days. The ukulele is not the first instrument you'd think of to pair with the word orchestra, but that's what the Ukulele Orchestra of Great Britain has done. This ensemble returns to Spivey Hall at Clayton State University after previously selling out the venue. These musicians believe that every genre of music is fair game for the oft-maligned instruments, reinterpreting pop songs and classical compositions with glee. Just go check out some of the videos of the group in action online. You'll see and hear them play everything from Bach and Wagner to The Clash and the theme from Shaft. It's a really joyous and wide-ranging approach to music, and they offer a new way of hearing some very familiar tunes. And if you've never been to the Jewel of the South Side, Spivey Hall, you really should. It's a beautiful and acoustically superior room. That's the Ukulele Orchestra of Great Britain, coming to Spivey Hall at 3 p.m. on April 15th. Those tickets are $50, and you can get them at spiveyhall.org. First, it was a novel back in 1972. It's been a hit film twice in 1976 with Jodie Foster and in 2003 with Jamie Lee Curtis and Lindsay Lohan. And now it's a musical. Freaky Friday, the beloved Disney classic in which a mother and daughter switch bodies, is on stage at Horizon Theater in Little Five Points. The musical boasts a score by the Pulitzer Prize-winning composers of Next to Normal and If Then, Tom Kitt and Brian Yorkey, and a book by Bridget Carpenter, a playwright who has also been a writer on the TV shows Friday Night Lights and Parenthood. If you're looking for a family-friendly night out, this is a really good bet. That's Freaky Friday the Musical, running at Horizon Theatre through April 22nd. Those tickets are $20 to $35, and you can get them at Horizontheater.com. The Marvelous Wonderettes, up next from the Marietta Theatre Company at the Lyric Studio on the Square, follows the lives of four young women from their high school prom in 1958 through their 10-year reunion. The musical score is jam-packed with hits from the era, including It's My Party, Lollipop, Leader of the Pack, and You Don't Own Me. This show runs April 13th through April 28th, and the tickets are $25. You'll find those and more about this candy-colored musical at MariettaTheater.com. People love Mother's Finest, especially those of us who grew up in the South. Just check out the reviews for the band's latest album, "Goodie Two-Shoes and the Filthy Beast, on Amazon.com. One reviewer calls it another great record from the most underrated rock band of all time. Back in the late 70s through the 80s, They were one of the hardest touring bands in the region. It was hard to miss them. I actually saw them in 1977 opening for Styx on that band's Grand Illusion tour. Yes, I've been around a while. And that was the first of many. They broke down barriers by putting the funk and R&B back into crunchy hard rock, following the trail blazed by Funkadelic. Forty years on and they're still touring like kids less than half their age, and they're about to head off for another round of shows in Europe. Before they do, You can catch them at Eddie's Attic, where they'll be playing four shows over the course of two nights. See Mother's Finest at Eddie's Attic in Decatur playing two shows each night on April 18th and 19th. Those tickets are $30 to $36, and you can get them at eddiesattic.com. Bear on the Square, held in and around Dahlonega's Historic Public Square on the third weekend in April, is an Appalachian Heritage Festival that includes bluegrass and old-time mountain music, workshops, a Sunday morning gospel jam, dancing, a live auction, family activities, a juried artist marketplace featuring traditional mountain crafts, storytelling, and more. It takes place in a charming town nestled in the beautiful North Georgia mountains. Bear on the Square Festival got its name from a legendary incident in the late 1990s in which a mama bear and a couple of cubs appeared in Dahlonega's historic town square. The mother and one cub soon escaped. But one cub remained for a couple hours after it climbed a sycamore tree. Today, there's a wood carving of a bear cub in that tree to commemorate that event. And there's also the Bear on the Square Festival, which was organized by some residents who wanted to throw a party to memorialize the bear cub's visit. And they're still doing it today. That's the 22nd annual Bear on the Square Festival in Dahlonega on April 21st and 22nd. And most of those events are free except for the silent auction fundraiser, which happens on Friday, April 20th. You'll find all the details at bearonthesquare.org. For more things to do around Metro Atlanta, head to accessatlanta.com. Our senior editor is Nicole Smith, podcast edited by Ryan Horn, music by Bo Emerson and Billy Guen, and I'm your host, Shane Harrison. Join us next week for more Access Atlanta.
3: AJC Access Atlanta is sponsored by Northside Hospital Cancer Institute,
2: built to beat cancer.